This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In his best-selling new book, Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, author Reza Aslan's goal was to write a biography of one of history's most influential people, drawing on historical sources instead of the traditional Gospels to help people understand the man who would one day be called the Messiah. Wharton Legal Studies and Business Ethics professor G. Richard Schell recently talked with Aslan about the life of Jesus, what Jesus taught us about leadership, and how a leader's message can sometimes change after his or her death. Hi, my name is Richard Schell. I'm here with Reza Aslan, the author of Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, and I'm uh, proud to say that we're happy at Wharton to uh, host a best-selling author uh, and someone who knows more than probably most people living about the facts of the, this life of Jesus. So welcome, Reza. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, Reza, um, I'm uh, curious about how this book came to uh, be next on the plate. You've written about Islam, you've written about fundamentalism, both of which are sort of Islamic-oriented Middle East subjects, but how did, how did the idea of writing a life of Jesus come to your mind? Well, it turns out Jesus is Middle Eastern too. <laughs> it's true. Um, no, I've actually been in, wanting to write this book for a very long time. It actually has its source in my uh, undergraduate thesis work at Santa Clara University, which was on something called the Messianic Secret in Mark, this very difficult to understand uh, thing that happens in the first gospel where Jesus is constantly denying his messianic identity, constantly rejecting it when other people throw it at him, and scholars have been trying to figure out for 200 years why that is. And I wrote a little little, uh, thesis on it that then became kind of the impetus for wanting to dig deeper and deeper into the historical Jesus. it's just that I didn't get a chance to actually write the book itself until until now. Okay, great. Um, well, um, for our listeners, um, I think it would be helpful to start this. If you could just give us sort of your thesis in a nutshell so uh, you can sort of set the plate. Right. Well, this is a book, it's a biography of the historical Jesus, the man who lived 2,000 years ago, this itinerant Jewish preacher who, despite his illiteracy, his lack of education, started a movement uh, that uh, that was seen as so revolutionary at the time, so threatening to the political and religious powers of the, of the day that he was ultimately arrested, tortured, and executed for it. It's an attempt to kind of dig through all of the layers of mythology and interpretation, the legends and theology that have arisen about this man over the last 2,000 years and to see as much as possible how we can get to the person himself. It's a, admittedly quite a difficult task. It's one that has been uh, a part of a quest for the historical Jesus for two centuries now. And really what I'm trying to do is distill these 200 years of academic scholarship and research into something that's appealing, that's popular, uh, and meant for a general audience, people who are interested in trying to figure out who this man was over and beyond what the sort of Christian traditions about him have created. And who he is 
is a Jewish nationalist revolutionary who, like the dozen or so other messiahs of his time, had as his chief goal the removal of the Roman occupation from the Holy Land. So people who are familiar with the Bible, I think, have an image of Jesus as sort of sitting in a meadow with a group of children. uh, and birds uh, on his shoulders, looking and, at yeah. mustard seeds and yes. flowers. Uh, and your image of Jesus is much closer to the one of the uh, powerful physical person who could overturn the tables of money changers. I, well, look, if you know nothing else about Jesus except that he was crucified, you know enough to at the very least begin to question that image that you're referring to of this pacifistic preacher of good works with no interest in the cares of this world. Crucifixion was a punishment that Rome reserved almost exclusively for crimes against the state, crimes like sedition or insurrection, treason, rebellion. That's all that you could be crucified for. So again, if that's all you know about Jesus, then you know enough to think that perhaps this guy was a little bit more of a troublemaker or a little more revolutionary than we we perhaps think. The image of Jesus as this celestial spirit with no concern over uh, anything about this world, that Jesus, frankly, would have gone totally unnoticed by Rome. Interesting. So um, um, I think, you know, a lot of people, when they just encounter the Bible, have this puzzle. You know, what did this guy do? that deserved this punishment. So you're saying, well, what, let's look at the punishment and go back to Precisely. see what he must have done. Precisely. That's exactly where you start at the end of the story, not the beginning of the story. This man was at the very least seen as a rebel, as a seditious. And let's be honest. I mean, if he did declare himself to be the Messiah, that is a treasonable offense in the first century. The Messiah means the anointed one. The job of the Messiah as the descendant of King David is to reestablish David's kingdom on earth, to usher in the rule of God. Well, if you're claiming to usher in the rule of God, you're claiming to usher out the rule of Caesar. And that is something that the Romans would not have ignored. Right. I remember the first time I read the Bible uh, just on my own, I, w- I remember being struck at about midway through the second gospel. Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> who, let, who, did, who kept the secret for me? It's funny that you say that because that really is the key to understanding the historical Jesus. And it seems obvious, I mean, everybody thinks, everybody knows Jesus is a Jew, but there are consequences to that fact, which is that everything that Jesus said or did, he said or did as a Jew, that every word that came out of his mouth has to be understood in the Jewish context, that his audience were Jews. So when Jesus said, I am the Messiah, He meant the Jewish Messiah, and every Jew who heard that understood what that meant. When he uh, overturned the tables of the money changers, when he talked about the kingdom of God as a very real thing on earth, those were the statements by a Jew about Judaism for Jews. And that should immediately change the way that you read the Gospels. The Gospels were written by Christians but they're written about a Jew. That uh, I remember, I read the Bible all the way through in a relatively short amount of time. And when I hit the New Testament, I suddenly started hearing uh, verses I'd heard before 
and they were all from the prophets and and various things. So I started circling passages right. that that I could find in another book in the Old Testament, and it really became obvious that he was referencing a tradition. So referencing a tradition, and what's really fascinating too about what you just said is that we have to understand the the direction where that prophecy goes. So obviously, a person of faith, a person uh, a believer, thinks that Jesus fulfilled these prophecies that were written by the Hebrew prophets. In reality, the gospel writers wrote Jesus' story in a way to fulfill those prophecies. So, for instance, one of the prophecies says that the Messiah has to be born in Bethlehem, but Jesus was not born in Bethlehem. Jesus was a Nazarene. That's how he was known throughout his entire life. So the Gospel of Luke has to figure out a way to make Jesus fit the prophecy, and so he creates this entire story about a census that forces Jesus' family to uproot themselves from Nazareth and go to Bethlehem where, where he is born. That's how the prophecies were fulfilled. You take the story of Jesus and you shift it so that it fits the prophecy, not the other way around. In, uh, in uh, law, we call that reverse engineering. <laughs> right, uh, right, precisely. So, uh, so let me ask you a couple of things uh, that might be of interest to our audience who are business uh, leaders, uh, people interested in business, uh, just because you know so much about the historical life of Jesus and sort of put it in context for us. So uh, uh, in your view, having studied uh, all the records, do you think that Jesus was an effective leader? Let's, let's talk about the basic facts of this man's life. He is illiterate, as 98% of his fellow Jews were, totally uneducated. If he was a tecton, like the Gospels say, uh, he was at the second lowest rung of the social ladder, just above the slave, the indigent, and the beggar. The tecton is... A tecton is a woodworker. Okay. You know, we always think of him sure, as, a, a as a carpenter. Right. But the image that we have of him is some guy with a small business, you know, that he's like making tables and chairs and people coming and buying. That's not what a tecton was. A tecton was a day laborer. A tecton was the kind of guy who hangs out uh, in front of Home Depot waiting for a truck to come by to get a job. He would go from city to city looking for work. So you're talking about the poorest of the poor, illiterate, uneducated, and yet, despite all that, was able to start this movement on behalf of the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the dispossessed, that ultimately led to this confrontation with Rome. So I guess what I'm saying is that the, the leadership principles there are so fascinating to me because the Gospels over and over again say that the people that Jesus spoke to were amazed not so much by his teachings but by the authority with which he spoke. It was his personal charisma that brought people to him. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a priest. He was not learned. He did not talk uh, about the scriptures from a position of an from an expert. He was not an expert in the scriptures. Instead, what he did was talk about the needs of the individuals that he was speaking to, and he would address those needs through his charisma, and, and that's where his power came from. So, in a in an American political context, he might have been a populist uh, politician, someone who came from the working class and who spoke to the working class and uh, was you know, very charismatic and able to, to develop a big Precisely. following. Precisely. Okay. Indeed, 
if you were to distill Jesus' social teachings, it was about the reversal of the social order. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. The rich shall be made poor, the poor shall be made rich. This was about as populist as it gets. I mean, nowadays we would call him a socialist and, you know, we would we would denigrate him to the margins of society. Well, it turns out that that's how they thought about him back then, too. Okay. Uh, what about his skill, another leadership skill, as a communicator? Uh, what, uh, what evidence do you have to suggest that uh, he either was uh, on the A-plus rung or the C <laughs> rung of communicator? Well, as most people know, Jesus' primary form of communication was through parables. Some of these parables, of course, for us are somewhat incomprehensible, you know, that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Uh, the kingdom of God is like a wedding banquet. The kingdom of God, of course, being the primary uh, message that he had in mind. That when he talks about the kingdom of God, he's talking precisely about this reversal of the social order that I was referring to. Now, obviously, this is a message that is profoundly appealing if you're at the lowest rungs of the social ladder. And it's profoundly threatening if you're at the highest rungs of the social ladder. So Jesus, by speaking in these parables, has figured out a way to communicate the truth of this kingdom to his audience who would understand precisely what he is talking about, but at the same time to keep it as much a secret as possible from the, those that would feel threatened by it. Indeed, he says about his parables that the secrets of the kingdom of God are spoken of in parables so that those who have ears to hear can hear them, those who can understand them can understand them, and to everyone else it's maintained a secret. And I think that's a very interesting and unique way of communicating your thoughts in a way that only your intended audience can understand. Well, one of, one of we in, in our teaching uh, here about persuasion and so on, uh, probably the most profound skill is coming up with the right metaphor. Uh, and the metaphor always has to connect to the specific audience. So I right. think what you're saying was he knew his audience and he had metaphors they could relate to. Exactly. And it's interesting because if you took, let's say, you know, some Herodian elite uh, and some uh, farmer and said to both of them, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The farmer understands what that means, this tiny insignificant seed that then becomes the biggest of bushes. The Herodian elite would have no idea what you're referring to. What's a mustard seed? Some small thing on a dining room table. Yeah, so that, oh, so then you mean it's irrelevant is right. what you mean. Interesting. Uh, there was, your, a lot of your book is taken up with the succession problem that followed Jesus' death. And uh, that's a huge issue in business when a founder uh, gives the reins or dies or moves on. Uh, there's usually rivalries in who's going to run the company or how, how, uh, how it, what direction it'll take. I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a little bit about whether uh, Jesus' succession planning worked out the way he planned. <laughs> well, so what we do know is that the, the person who ended up leading the community that Jesus left behind after his death was his brother, James. James was a very very significant man in, in the first century. Um, he was called the Bishop of Bishops, and he, he led what was known as the Jerusalem Assembly, or church. They didn't have the word church back then, but the, the, the Jerusalem church, which was then in charge of all the other churches that pop up everywhere. James had a very uh, limited conception of what this movement was about. Jesus was a Jew. James was a Jew. 
This was a Jewish movement. It was for Jews. Uh, certainly non-Jews could join this movement if they'd like, but first they had to become Jews. They had to follow all the Jewish dietary restrictions, the Jewish laws. After a few years, James decided to forego the circumcision uh, requirement, which is marketing-wise probably a good idea. But nevertheless, as far as he was concerned, this was a Jewish movement for Jews and that you had to become a Jew to join it. The sort of rival to James was Paul. Paul, this former Pharisee who never knew J Jesus while he was alive, but who has this ecstatic experience uh, of the risen Jesus and decides that he's going to actually transform this movement for non-Jews. He's going to preach it to Gentiles. And if he's going to do that, particularly if he's going to preach it to Rome, he has to get rid of these Jewish requirements. So as far as James, uh, Paul is concerned, Forget about the law of Moses. Forget about circumcision. Forget about the dietary requirements. Forget about the even notion of having to become a Jew first, that Jesus' movement transcends Judaism. Now, here's the interesting thing. During the lifetime of both men, uh, Paul dies around 66 AD, James dies at 62 AD. During the lifetime of these two men, James is descendant. After all, you don't argue with the brother, the flesh and blood brother of Jesus. He wins. Any argument that you have, James is going to win. But after the death of both men, and certainly after 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, it's Paul's idea of Christianity that suddenly becomes ascendant as Christianity becomes less and less a Jewish religion and more a, Christ a Roman religion. This notion of a universalism, that a Christianity that's divorced from its parent religion becomes enormously popular and successful. And James's version of Christianity, a Jewish religion for Jews, continues to exist, but just begins to slowly die away. So it's an interesting notion that the successor of Jesus, James, who thinks that he is following Jesus's vision uh, becomes the failed version of Christianity. And the version of Christianity that divorces itself from Jesus's teachings and creates something new, appealing, open to everyone becomes the largest religion in the world. So um, I find it ironic if Jesus was a sort of failed revolutionary that his kingdom actually ended up overtaking Rome. <laughs> right. Uh, and one wonders, depending on what you, how you characterize Jesus, whether he might not have had uh, a bit of an insight into how <laughs> this would all work out. I think that that's certainly what Christians would say, is that the failure of the cross was actually a victory. And, but again, you're going to have to thank Paul for that and not so much Jesus. Well, Jesus appeared to Paul. Yeah, right, right. The risen <laughs> Jesus appeared to Paul, and Paul says that he's getting all this information from the risen Jesus, so that, but, that's a good point. I mean, that's where I guess uh, a book like yours uh, goes straight to the border of faith, and then it becomes you know, pretty hard to you know, have a discussion around facts. So. Here's the dividing line, and, I th and I'm glad that you brought this up. Is it possible that Jesus had this conception of himself utterly unique than what any other Jew understood when it came to the, the role of the Messiah? Is it possible that he thought to himself that this celestial kingdom will overcome the Roman Empire and that no action on earth would do that? 
Yes, it's possible. Is it likely? No, it's not likely. And that's the dividing line between the historian and the person of faith. The person of faith is interested in what is possible. The historian is interested in what is likely. I guess the, uh, the, the fact that this faith uh, worked out so well uh, in terms of an institution uh, suggests that that wasn't likely either. So I think that's a good point. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so two, two quick points to, to wrap it up for us. Um, first of all, you've been on this book tour. You've written a, a controversial book uh, that sort of looks at, at something that's very hard to see, the historical Jesus. Uh, what are some of the surprises that you've met on the road as you've exposed this message to different audiences? Well, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I get a, I've gotten a, an overwhelmingly positive response, particularly from Christians. I think a lot of Christians uh, who email me, I get dozens of these emails a, a week, uh, telling me that although they actually believe that this person that I'm describing is also God, they so rarely get an opportunity to, if you will, suspend that, this, that belief and instead look at Jesus as just a man. It's very hard to do that. You know, if you think that Jesus is fully God and fully man, no matter how hard you try, the man part gets subsumed by the God part. Um, and this is an opportunity for them to have that experience. At the same time, I get just as many emails from atheists who say that, Finally, this is the Jesus that they've been looking for, that the other Jesus, the godly Jesus they know is just a bunch of bunk, but in reality, this is the Jesus that they want. So for me as a writer and as a thinker, it's been incredibly satisfying to see Christians and atheists come to this book and both enjoy it for their own sort of preconceived reasons. Right. You've had this issue that arose as well having to do with um, – your own uh, background right. and your own family. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that uh, has worked out. Well, so you know, I've, I've, as I've med mentioned before, I'm a Muslim. That I, I uh, that my faith background is Islam. Uh, that my scholarship, of course, is something entirely different. Uh, you know, it, it might be difficult for a lot of people to understand that religion is an academic discipline. That we are all, you know, coming at it from as much as an academic and objective and scholarly route as we possibly can, despite the fact that many of us have our own backgrounds. So, you know, Jews write about Buddhism and, and Christians write about Islam and sometimes Muslims write about uh, Christianity. Uh, in my world, that's totally normal. But in the popular world, and particularly amongst certain media outlets that shall remain unnamed, uh, that's crazy that you can't possibly not have some secret agenda if you're writing about uh, a religion not, you know, from that religious uh, religion's perspective. But, you know, to be honest, that's as much our fault as it is the media's fault. The truth of the matter is and I can say this for scholars of almost every discipline, including business, uh, we don't do a very good job sometimes of communicating to a popular audience. We spend so much time locked in these ivory towers talking to each other in our own specialized language that nobody else can understand. We talk about these complex theories and ideas as though they don't, they don't have a real world uh, uh, you know, uh, impact. And we don't spend enough time, I think, communicating to the popular media, to the popular world. And by the way, when we do, we're often criticized by our own colleagues for doing so. So it's a two-way street. I mean, it's on the one hand, there's a misperception of what scholars do in the media, but 
we bear some of that burden ourselves. Yeah, well, Jesus encountered his culture and was misunderstood, and you've encountered <laughs> yours. Uh, I'll take that. <laughs> so last, last question, uh, and this is just a, a, a quirky one, but I know a lot of our listeners have read Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code. Right. And the premise of that novel and some sequels is that Jesus had a family, a wife, uh, children, that there's this bloodline of Jesus that's uh, persisted through the Middle Ages to the present. <laughs> well, you've investigated the life of Jesus more than anyone I know. So what do you think? Well, this is actually a very complex question. It's sort of one of the biggest paradoxes about Jesus' studies. On the one hand, it would have been inconceivable for a 30-year-old Jewish male in the first century not to have a wife and children. He may as well be from Mars. I mean, it would have been absolutely inconceivable. That's not to say that there weren't celibates in Jesus' time. There were, but they were monastic orders. They separated themselves from society, not just from wives and children. And Jesus obviously did not do that. Um, so that's, that's, the, that's the first fact. It would have been downright inconceivable. Here's the other fact. In every piece of writing ever written about Jesus, by his friends and his enemies, by his detractors and his worshipers, everything written by Christians, by Jews, by pagans, by apologists, everything ever written about Jesus, there is never a mention of wife and kids. And that is difficult to overcome. Uh, now, is it possible that we'll come up with something one day, that a piece of papyrus will suddenly show up, as, as perhaps my colleague Karen King may have found, which we're still waiting to find out whether that's authentic or not, and there's some question about whether it is or not? Will some gospel all of a sudden show up uh, one day that, that shows that Jesus was married? Maybe. But those are the irreconcilable facts it would have been impossible to think of him as not married, and yet. No evidence. No evidence. All right, great. Uh, Reza Aslan, author of Zealot, The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.